0: Well, thank you for that warm welcome. Thank you for that, uh, for really building me up to completely fail up here, Paul. I appreciate that. No um, <laughs> uh, and I do want to say, March is a great birthday month. My birthday's a week from tomorrow. And Nick, since it's a boy, is a great name. Nicholas is a holy name, right? Uh, St. Nicholas of Myra is the inspiration for Santa Claus. Uh, gave presents to... Uh, to. Um, poor children during that time period in the, in the, uh, in the late early 300s, late 200s. So uh, Nicholas is a wonderful and very holy name. I'm just throwing that out there. But um, I won't speak for Sharon. I, I try not to speak for my wife, uh, who's sitting here. Now, when we were here, we sat where Jay and you and your family lo- lo- sit. So if I look back at you with some loving eyes, it's only because I think my wife is still sitting back there in that corner. But uh, We did, we did. But I won't pretend to speak for her, but I'm obviously very excited to be here today. Um, excited to worship with you, excited to open up the Word of God with you. I'm grateful that Paul, Paul and I have talked about us coming for a while, and it just never really worked out, and so we had this time in between ministries where it just seemed to work out well, and so I'm grateful that, that he offered me this opportunity to come, and offered me the opportunity to step into this pulpit again, which this lectern wasn't here when I was here last time, so this is nice. I've got I feel a little Spurgeon-esque up here, right? I wish I could grow a Spurgeon beard, but anyway... Uh, but Sharon and I both love this church. We adore this church. It's obviously changed quite a bit in three years, and that's, that's wonderful. You can see the church growing. Uh, to quote uh, C.S. Lewis, Aslan has obviously been on the move, Amen. and this is, this is a great thing. And so I know that you have spent quite a, few time, uh, quite a few months in the book of Colossians. I've enjoyed listening to those online. I do pay attention to those, even though I'm still not here anymore, or I'm not here any, any longer. So I know that you have enjoyed them. They have edified me. I'm sure they've edified you. But I thought today what we would do is take a break from Paul of Tarsus and Paul of Jettel and instead flip over, and you see this on the screen, you see this in your handout, flip over to another apostle this morning and look at First Peter. So if you have your Bibles or your devices or your papyrus, make your way to the letter of First Peter. And we're going we're to read in chapter 2. But while you're making your way there, what I want to do, I actually want to um, give you a bit of a disclaimer. While you're making your way to 1 Peter chapter 2, we are going to focus in specifically on one verse and one verse only. And you see that really on the screen a minute ago with the title screen. But before we get there, I want to actually cover the whole first chapter and a half. I know that's super ambitious, but get comfortable because this is going to take a minute, right? But it really won't take that long. But I do what I want to do is I want to try to get us out of here in, obviously, plenty enough time before people get to the line in mows. But at the same time, I want to cover a few things because I do think this will be helpful as we come to our text in First Peter chapter 2. So here's what I want to do. To help us do that, I want us to read our text from First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Then we'll back out, we'll set the stage, and then we'll come back to the text and walk through it together. So if you are able, if you can, if you would, honor God's Word, the reading of God's Word with me and stand, if you do not mind. If you're able to stand, please stand. And we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And hear the word of the Lord from the letter of 1 Peter. Peter writes here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. Like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have entasted, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ." as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have Received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray, and then you can be seated. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you praise for this day. Lord, we thank you, God, for calling us out of the darkness of our sin and into the light of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our beds this morning, Lord, into worship with a gathered body here at Lake Wildwood Baptist. Lord God, we thank you for your church. We thank you, Lord, for what she is. Lord, we thank you for redeeming her. Lord God, we thank you for calling us to be a part of her. Lord God, we pray this morning that we would expect to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we pray that we would expect to have you illumine the Scriptures in our hearts and in our minds. Lord God, we pray today that as we open your word, Lord, that you would be honored by it. Lord, as we proclaim your word today, Lord, that you would be honored by it. And Lord, we pray that our worship to you would be ultimately in spirit and in truth. And we pray these things in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. All right. Now that we've read it, let's back up. Let's set the stage, okay? So what we see, what we're going to see here, if you've never spent time with a letter of Peter, either letter of Peter, either of Peter's letters, excuse me, then you're really doing yourself a disservice. You really need to go read both of Peter's letters. But what you'll get really quickly with Peter, a lot like with Paul, is that Peter is a very straightforward kind of guy. He really is. Peter is what we call the common clay of the Middle Eastern uh, time period, right? He's, just a, he's your typical everyday guy, right? He was a fisherman, kind of burly, right? We even see on the night that he, he denies Christ, he curses, right? Not that, I'm not saying go out and curse for Jesus or anything like that. Don't do that. But, you know, he's, he's a guy's guy, right? And so he's very straightforward. He's very to the point. But, like John, though, what Peter has a bad tendency to do is to give you a whole bunch of good theological stuff Get into the practical stuff, and then randomly throw in more theological stuff and kind of get you all confused. He really does that, especially in this letter. You get over to chapter 3, you're going to get into some stuff. You're like, what in the world are you saying, Peter? So if you read through this this week, which I do do encourage you to do, there's five chapters in 1 Peter. Read a chapter a day. You'll really enjoy it. If you come across something you don't understand, ask your pastor. And if he doesn't understand it, he can ask me, right? Because that's usually how this works. But, no, I'm kidding. That's a bad joke. You can all laugh at that and relax a little bit. Okay, thank you, thank you. All right, but there's two important points, though, that Peter really brings out in chapter one that we really need to have a good grasp on before we get to chapter two. And the first one is this, and it's there in your listening sheet, and it's this. Peter is writing to whole churches, not individuals. Peter is writing to whole churches, not individuals. Now... Let me clarify before you run me out of the church with torches and pitchforks, all right? Because yes, absolutely, Peter's letter can be taken in your own personal walk with Jesus, and it should be, right? Peter's letter is definitely written just like the rest of the Bible so that, as John tells us in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, so that you can know that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. Yes, you can, excuse me, you can grow in Jesus in your own personal walk with Jesus from the letter of 1 Peter, but... At the same time, we are called Christians. We are called not to be individual brides of Jesus, but to be the collective bride of Jesus. Individually, what we are, we're like ambassadors for the kingdom of God. When we leave here this morning as the collective body of Christ, as we go our separate ways, we're going out as ambassadors for the kingdom of God to our workplaces, to our social circles, to Walmart, to Kroger, to wherever we go to lunch. We are ambassadors for God's kingdom. But collectively the church and i think we've misunderstood this in a lot of ways in our western context right because we very much put a whole lot of emphasis on your individual relationship your individual this your individual that so much so that frankly we neglect the church We neglect the church so much that people go, well, I go to this church for preaching, but then I go to this church for Bible study, and then I go to this church for this, I go to this church for that. And we make our own faith and our own religion out of just bopping around churches like they're buffets, and we mistreat the bride of Jesus Christ. We are called as the church, and we're called to commit to the church and its local expression wherever we're at. And so what Peter is doing this, and he understands this when he gets here to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, he understands that he's writing to whole churches. He's not writing to Paul over here in this city. He's not writing to Nick over here in this city. He's writing to the whole church in each city. Listen to what he says in verses 1 and 2. He just says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? He's identifying himself. But then he says this, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, you're been scattered abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Christ Jesus, and for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What he's saying here is he's talking to these whole churches who are in exile around the Roman Empire. Now, all of these cities are cities that are in modern-day Turkey, so they're in Asia Minor. So it's not like you've got one up in Britain, one in Gaul, one in you know, North Africa. They're all in Asia Minor, because this is usually, especially with the ministry of Paul, this is where most of the church has grown at this point, Right. But he understands that they're in exile, meaning they're dealing with persecution. They're dealing with social unrest and their own cultural influence. They're dealing with not being the favored members of society. These Christians in these churches are dealing with the issue of not having any kind of cultural influence themselves. And what Peter is writing to them is he's saying... You are outcasts in the communities. You are unwanted in public life, and I need to write to you. This sounds kind of familiar in 2021, doesn't it? Yes. Now, let me clarify this. This is not to feed into any kind of false persecution complex. Let's be frank. You get made fun of on Facebook, you're not being persecuted, right? You are not, you are not at threat right now in this moment of the police coming in and dragging us out and chopping off our heads for worshiping Jesus Christ. It's not going to happen. Our brothers and sisters in other countries are. We're not really persecuted, right? We are made fun of, but we're not persecuted like our brothers and sisters around the world or even these churches here were at the time. But what this does do is this helps to give us a better understanding of not only to whom Peter is writing in the first century here, but also how we can turn around in 2021 and understand these lessons so that when or if the time comes when we are persecuted like these churches are persecuted. Or we do join our brothers and sisters from other countries that, where they are unwelcome to worship Jesus. We can understand, here's who we are in Christ Jesus. So this helps us. Because Peter, when we come to our text this morning, let's remember, Peter is writing to whole churches. So I'm going to be addressing you as Lake Wildwood Baptist Church, right? Not Paul, not Sharon, not Elizabeth, not whoever. You are Lake Wildwood Baptist Church. Peter is writing to whole churches. The second thing here, is this. Not only is Peter uh, writing to whole churches, but Peter is also writing to remind us of our hope in Jesus. He's writing to remind us of our hope in Jesus. If you want a thesis statement for the entire book of 1 Peter, it's remember your hope in Christ. Now this covers the whole rest of chapter 1. So for the sake of time, the sake of my voice, and the sake of getting in line at lunch before everybody else does. We're not going to read the whole chapter, okay? So, again, read it this week. Read this whole chapter this week and tell me whether or not I'm wrong on this, but I don't think I am. He's reminding us of our hope in Jesus. And here's what he's doing. Because what Peter is doing is he's writing, because he's writing to whole churches, churches who are in exile, who are dealing with persecution, being social outcasts, everything else, he wants to remind them that their only hope, their only hope in life and in death is that they're not their own, but they belong to who? To God, right? Yeah, New City Catechism is taking root, right? They are not their own, but they belong to God. They belong to Christ. And so Peter wants to remind them that their hope is in Jesus. Their hope is not in being socially acceptable. Their hope is not in having political power. Their hope is not in cultural influence. No, their hope is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Their hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing more and nothing less, but Jesus completely is where their hope lies. And frankly, here's the challenge. We haven't even gotten into chapter 2 yet, but here's the challenge. If you're laying your hope in something other than Christ Jesus, then let's use a very Baptist phrase here. You need to check your heart. Right? You really do. Is your hope in political influence? Is your hope in elections going the way you want them to? Is your hope in people not treating you bad because you believe in Jesus? Don't worry about that. And that's Peter's point. Hope in Christ Jesus. That's where your hope lies. As we come to this text in chapter 2 this morning, remember, our hope is in Christ Jesus. And that's chapter 1, right? Told you, it'd be kind of quick, but not, right? That's chapter 1. Now, obviously, there's a lot of good stuff in chapter 1. Don't neglect chapter 1 on my extreme generalization of it. Go read chapter 1. There's a lot of good stuff here where Peter digs into this even deeper on what this hope in Christ looks like. But for our purpose this morning, those two points, he's writing the whole churches, he's writing to remind us of our hope in Christ, those are the points to keep in mind as we come to chapter two. Because he builds out of that for the rest of the letter. That's his whole point. So I mentioned this a moment ago, but what I wanna do, I wanna look at one verse and one verse only, and we're gonna read that whole text again in just a second. But this one verse and one verse only gives us a very vital piece of information that every Christian And every biblical congregation needs to have a good grasp of. And it's the title of our sermon. We need to know our role. We need to know our role in God's kingdom. Now, you might be a pastor, you might be a deacon, you might be a worship leader, you might be uh, the floor sweeper, you might be a nursery worker, but we all have the same roles in the kingdom of God. And that's where Peter is getting at in this chapter here. And so now that we've gotten a good running start... From chapter one now all the way to chapter two, let's look at this text again with these two major points in mind. Peter's writing to whole churches, he's writing to remind us of our hope in Jesus. Listen to what he says again. You don't have to stay in this time. Just, just sit there and read along with me. Starting in chapter two, verse one. So then, so, after all of this, right, so put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, like babies. Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, whole church, as you come to him as a living stone, church, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, church, you are chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, multiple churches, right? He's writing to multiple churches, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Churches as a singular spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. And... Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, let's zoom in on verse 9. That's where we're going to hang out the rest of the day other than a few cross-reference verses. All right, so first... First, and you see this, and I wanted you to know it so much that I accidentally gave it to Paul in two points there for number three. So it's actually the main point and point A, so it's, it's two parts, and that's fine. Uh, but first, you are, church, you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. So here's what I want you to do. I know that you guys repeat things, because, again, I listen to the sermons, and I get Paul to, or I listen to Paul do it, and I hear you guys doing it all the time. So I want you to repeat after me. We, not I, we, we are a chosen race. Thank you, thank you. We are a chosen race. So, let's dig into this. What does Peter, where does he get this term? Because right? we, we, we hear this, and it sounds familiar, it's very Christianese, but where does it come from? For some of us that may not have a whole lot of understanding, if, if you're really thinking about it, you're like, well, you know what, especially with the word race, this has kind of an Old Testament feel to it, right? Well, you're absolutely right. Right? Nick, we're not Old Testament, we're New Testament, so why are we looking at the Old Testament? Well, let me, let me just put it this way. The apostles had the Old Testament because the Spirit was still inspiring them to write the New, right? So the Old Testament was their Bible. But we are a New Testament people, but what we see in this letter, and specifically in this verse, is Peter drawing upon multiple Old Testament descriptions of God's people Israel, and then turning around and applying them directly to the New Testament church. So what does it mean to be a chosen race? Let's break, the, let's break that term into two. Let's look at each word individually. First, what does it mean to be chosen? Now, there are 2,000 years of Christian history and theology that have wrestled with this debate, and people still disagree, right? They frankly do. But so let's, let's take this all the way back to the first century. Let's take this back to 60-something AD when Peter would have written this letter and understand that these people had no clue who Augustine was, They had no clue who John Calvin was. They had no clue who Jacob Arminius was. They had no clue of this whole argument. So let's take this back to its most simple thing. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge old theology nerd, right? I love to talk about these things. These are important for the edification of the bride of Jesus. But let's take this back to its most simplistic term because these folks have no clue who those people are. These folks are asking this apostle for strength during times of hardship. He's saying, what they're asking, what does God have for us? We're being persecuted, we're hated, our people are being murdered because they love Jesus. They're calling us cannibals because we eat the body and blood of Jesus on Sunday mornings. And we take in orphan children. They think this is legit church history. The, the Roman world thought that Christians took in orphan children to eat them because we were cannibals. That's legit Christian history, guys. It's crazy stuff. The world hates us because they think we're crazy. So what does God have for us, Peter? And he says this, church... You have literally, in all actuality, you have been chosen by God Himself to be His. You have been chosen by God. And Peter does not use this word lightly. He means it completely and literally. Back in chapter 2, verse 6, if you've got your Bibles open, you see this. He says this. He tells us, it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Jesus Himself was chosen and precious to God. We're comfortable with that, right? We like that. We understand that. But then he comes to verse 7, and he tells us something that blows our minds. And it's something I don't know whether or not we really fully appreciate, because he tells us this. Jesus is chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. What he's telling us is what is true of Jesus is true of us. Amen. What is true of Christ is true of his people. Now, this, this doesn't mean that we become divine like Christ himself is divine but what this does mean is that Jesus himself gives us everything that the Father has given to him everything as the bride of Christ we receive everything that Jesus has received John tells us in 1 John chapter 1 verse 12 that through Christ through our faith in Jesus we have been given the right to become children of God He tells us Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 that in Jesus we have obtained an inheritance That inheritance is literally the inheritance of a son from his kingly father that Jesus goes, you know what, I want my bride to have this. I want to give it all to my bride. What is true of Jesus is true of us as his bride. Since God has chosen Jesus, then God has chosen us in Jesus to be his chosen race. Church, you are chosen by God. Thank you. This is a great place to say amen. Thank you, Judy. I appreciate that. <laughs> amen. Right? So we are chosen by God, but what about race? We've heard this word a lot over the last year and a half especially, right? Again, I've been listening to Paul's sermons. I know even over last year he was talking about the aspect of everything that was going on and social unrest and how it is extremely inappropriate to take these doctrines and, imp- and then turn around and to put them onto Scripture. Scripture should, scripture should help you with your worldview toward how to approach those things, not the other way around. And that's, that's the point that I think Paul is making through those sermons over last year. And the same with being chosen, Peter is using this word in its absolute literal sense. Church, you are not only literally chosen by God, you are now God's literal race. You are his people, you are his race. Think about this, the church who has placed their hope and faith and trust in Christ Jesus for salvation. You are literally now a new race because of the blood of Christ Jesus. You are are a new race of God because of the blood of Christ Jesus. Just how God called and chose Abraham and the race that would literally come from him, so now the church, the body and bride of Christ Jesus himself, are now God's chosen race. If you don't believe me, right, if you don't believe me, then let's go to the scriptures. All right, so first, these are going to come up on the screen. For, I think they should. They should come up on the screen. So first, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Peter takes this passage and he turns around and intentionally applies it to the church, to the New Testament church, to God's new, true Israel. He says this in chapter 7, verse 6. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. To be a people for his treasure possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Church, you are the chosen race of God. Amen. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to Isaiah chapter 43 verse 10 where the prophet writes here from the word of the Lord. He says, For you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have what? Whom I have chosen right. that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. I am the Lord your God. But wait a minute, Nick, here you go again, right? Man, Nick, stay out of the Old Testament, take me to the New Testament. All right, fine, we'll go to the New Testament. Let's go to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, all right? Let's do this. Listen to what Paul tells the Romans in chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. He says, not all who are descended from Israel, the people, or the man, belong to Israel, the people of God. Not all who are descended from Israel, the man, belong to Israel, the people of God. And not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What in the world does that mean? Well, he tells us. This is what's so great about Paul, right? Here's what he tells us. This means, then, that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Friends, the chosen race of God has literally nothing to do with skin color. It has nothing to do with geography. It has nothing to do with language. You are not a better Christian in here this morning because you are white and from the United States. You can be from Iran and be a believer in Christ and be still part of this chosen race of God. Everything, this has everything to do with being a child of the promise through Jesus Christ. Believers who have a living hope in Christ Jesus have been united by faith in him and have become a new people and a new race. The chosen race of God is a spiritual race that's not defined by language or skin color. It's defined by the blood of Jesus. You are a chosen race so that, as verse 9 tells us here in 1 Peter, so that you may go out and proclaim the excellencies of God who called you out of your sin and into his marvelous light. Know your role. Lake Wildwood Baptist Church, know your role. You are a chosen race. Let's do it again. Repeat it with me. We are a chosen race. We are a chosen race. Thank you. Well, that one is just the first one. I don't know how long I've gone so far. That's the first one. All right. So, what about the next one? What about royal priesthood? Now, If being a chosen race was too Old Testament for you, then this one is really going to rub you the wrong way. This one's going to bother you, right? It's a doozy, so buckle up, hang on, and let's hit this. So first, let's do it again. Repeat after me. We are a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. All right. Something, again, that we have to constantly keep in mind when we come to the New Testament is, again, these apostles have the Old Testament as their Bible because they're still being inspired to write the New. And for Peter, who grew up a Jew lives in Jerusalem now because he's one of the elders of the Jerusalem church. He has the Old Testament priesthood slapping him in the face every day of the week. Right? The temple was, around before, uh, was still up when Peter was martyred. Right? The temple wasn't destroyed until 70 A.D. when the Romans sacked Jerusalem, right? and that's when it was destroyed. So for Peter, the temple would have still been there. The sacrifices would have still been going on. All of these things were still slapping him in the face. And so he uses that language to help us understand our role in God's kingdom. The Old Testament priesthood was set up in such a way... And Sharon and I have been reading this in our daily Bible readings. We're in the smack in the middle of Leviticus right now. And we're hitting all these laws. And you, what you understand, though, is that God set up the Old Testament priesthood in such a way that like a mirror, they are to reflect back to the world the glory of God. And because like a mirror, they are to reflect the glory of God back to the world, they, they wanted to do this and they were to do this in such a way that the rest of the world would know for a fact that no other god, gods, idols, anything that mankind is tempted to worship could ever or would ever rival the Lord God. That was how their function was supposed to work. And what Peter does here in this verse is he starts to take this old covenant priesthood and turn around and apply it to the new covenant church. And he really does this. He does this really well from Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. It should come up on the screen. Listen to this we're going to spend a lot more time in this passage as we as we dig through this the rest of the morning but listen he says this god tells the exodus generation he says now therefore if you israel if you church if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a what a kingdom of priests and a holy nation the whole nation not just the levitical priesthood but the whole nation was to be a kingdom of priests We can see a connection here to what Peter says back in chapter 2, verse 5. If you've got your Bibles open, look there. He says this He says, Church, each of these churches, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, what does this have to do with us being priests, right? What does this mean? Being a priest implies action, it implies doing. What this means for us is that priests, as priests of God, We are not simple, passive participants in worship. We don't show up on Sunday for church to sit back and do nothing. We are not spectators in worship. Worship is not a spectator sport. Priests are participants in worship. Because worship for the people of God and for the church of God is to be living and active. This is why we stand at the beginning of a service and we pray a psalm back and forth aloud. We're praying God's word. We're internalizing it. We're memorizing it. We're working through it. Because the function of priests is to be active participants in worship, and we are priests. You know why we stand when we sing praises or why we raise our hands in worship if you're of that inclination? Do you know why we kneel when we come to repent and we come to confess our sins or hold out our hands when we receive the elements of the Lord's Supper? We do it because we are priests, and the function of priests is to be active participants in worship. Worship should be active. Y'all, and you can ask my wife this, I can't carry a tune in a rusted tin can. I can't sing for the life of me, but I do it anyway when I come, especially to worship, because I wanna worship my Redeemer. So who cares if you can't sing, right? Belt out that tune, right? I don't care if your singing voice is atrocious. I don't care if you want to raise your hands or clap or hoot and holler or even yell yee-haw even though we're way far away from Texas. (laughs) Yell it. Who cares? I know we're Baptists. It's not in our DNA to be excitable in worship. It goes against our Puritan genes. It really does. But our Puritan forefathers can roll over in their graves. But let's be honest. They understood their function as priests of God. The Puritans knew their role as royal priesthood. We are priests, and our function is to be active in worship. And just as the Old Testament priesthood proclaimed the covenant of God to the world around them, New Covenant priests, New Covenant priests, as the, as the New Covenant priests, we are to go out and to proclaim the New Covenant of God as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to proclaim, verse 9, the excellencies of Him who called us out of our sin and into His marvelous light. And here's the beautiful thing about all this, right? You know, I don't like that word priest. It sounds too Catholic or too Anglican or whatever. I don't like that. But you know what? You know what's great about this? We're not just priests. We're royal priests. This is so great. Guys, we are royal priests. This is why Scripture is so beautiful, why God has inspired it to move on our hearts. Because we're royalty. We're royalty. We're royalty because we, each and every one of us, who have put our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus, have come under the authority of the King of all kings. We are royalty. And we're not only priests under the great high priest, but we're royal priests under the king of the entire universe. As Colossians tells us, the one through whom and by whom and for whom all things have been created. We're priests so that we can proclaim His excellencies to the world. We are royal priests. We need to know our role. So know your role, Lake Wildwood Baptist Church. You are a royal priesthood. So repeat it with me again. We are a royal priesthood. Amen. All right, number three. So not only are we a chosen race, not only is the church a royal priesthood, but here it gets even more fun, right? If you haven't had fun yet, let's have fun now. Now we are also a holy nation. So repeat this with me: We are a holy nation. We are a holy nation. All right. In many ways, this is actually really similar. This sounds almost the same as chosen race, right? Kind of like, hang on a minute. Chosen, holy, race, nation. I I, I get the connection. But much like being a chosen race, if you start to work your way through the storyline of the Bible, what you understand is that God not only chose in the Old Testament a particular man that would become a particular nation, a particular ethnic race that would become the people of Israel, right? But we also understand that these children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob also became an actual political kingdom. They became a nation. In the same way then, New Testament church, the bride and body of Jesus, we have become God's new chosen holy nation. We are God's nation. So much like royal priesthood, what we see is Peter grounds this whole thing in Exodus chapter 19. Look at what he says there again, Exodus 19:5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This idea of being a holy nation should really immediately, and this is why it's great you've got your Bibles open, should draw us back to chapter 1. right? I know we didn't touch on everything, but listen to what Peter says in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says this, But as he called you, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. What does this mean for us? It means that as a holy nation a holy nation of God has been completely separated from the unholiness of the world and consecrated and dedicated to God. Again, Peter is very intentional about the language he uses here. He knows what he's doing. He's very intentional about using this language to describe the church. And this language appropriately now applies not just to the Covenant Old Testament people of Israel, but now that holy nation that has become God's nation through the power and work of Jesus Christ. But unlike the nation of Israel, unlike the nation of Israel that was made up of one specific ethnic people group, the church of Jesus Christ is made up of all people, from all tribes and all tongues and all nations. And here's the beauty about being part of God's holy nation, is that the nation of God is represented worldwide from all times and all places. And it continues to be represented worldwide from all times and all places, regardless of the man-made boundaries that she exists in. And will continue to exist in all time and all places, regardless of the man-made boundaries she exists in, even if those man-made boundaries crumble and fall. Let me put this out there, and this will probably get me thrown out of the church with torches and pitchforks. Rome came and went, and the church survived. The British Empire came and went, and the church survived. Y'all, I'm proud to be an American, but America is here, and one day it'll be gone, and the church will thrive and survive. The kingdom of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. It will not happen. This is something we need to grasp as Christians. Because, and you guys, you have seen this over the past year alone. We are putting our hope in something more than Jesus Christ. The nation of God is a physical nation that is made up of physical people all over the world, but it's also a spiritual nation because it is intentionally our differences that God calls us out of to make the greater reality, the greater nationality, the greater kingdom of God to show that His kingdom is more than man-made kingdoms. Which kingdom do we worship? Which kingdom are we a part of? Am I proud to be here that I can worship freely? Absolutely. But this is not my home. My kingdom... I am part of God's kingdom. We have a different banner than every man-made kingdom. Mm. We have a different banner. Our banner is not a flag. Our banner is the cross of Christ Jesus. This is something we've got to get our minds wrapped around. I love the red, white, and blue guys. But I'll be honest, I love the old rugged cross more than I love the red, white, and blue. Our symbol of hope is not earthly. It's heavenly. Our symbol of freedom and liberty and hope is not the Constitution. It's the resurrected and glorified Jesus Christ that's sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for you constantly to repent and come to Him. That is our symbol of hope and freedom. And here's the rub. Here's the key. If if that didn't get you, then this will, hopefully. Because true Christians, true Christians who are now part of God's holy nation can now fully understand and fully embrace our actual positions as exiles in the world. This ties us all the way back to verse 1 in chapter 1. We are refugees in this world. You want to use a term that we're all pretty familiar with here? We are illegal aliens in this world. We don't belong here. We are here illegally. We are in a land that has no place for us. And like little... Members of the kingdom of God, we're like little garrisons, Monday through Saturday, lunchtime on Sunday. We go out like a black ops team and recruit more people to the kingdom of God. That's what our job is individually as Christians. And the world recognizes us as different. It recognizes us as different, as Peter tells us here in verse 12, by our holiness. And guys, if the world recognizes us as weird and different, then we should embrace our weirdness and our different our differentness and just simply be holy. Amen. That's his point here. You are a holy nation that has its own boundaries. You just happen to live in man-made boundaries. So we need to know our role. Know your role. Lake Wildwood Baptist, you are a holy nation consecrated to God. So repeat it with me, we are a holy nation. We are a holy nation. Amen. Last, but obviously very much not least, let's look at this final one. Let's see what it means to be a people for God's own possession. So you know the drill at this point, repeat it with me. We are God's possession. We are God's possession. All right. Again, Peter grounds this whole thing in Exodus 19, but he also does it in Deuteronomy 7 6. So I'm gonna read Exodus 19 first, and then you can flip back to Deuteronomy if that's all right. So here's what he says again. Listen again. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be what? My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Deuteronomy 7, 6, he says this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Y'all, we did it earlier, thanks to Judy, but let's do it again. This is a great place to just pause and say amen. We're Baptists. We need to do this every now and then, right? Amen. This is a great place to say amen. So, so how does this work? Right? How does this work in the New Covenant? Because again, Nick, Nico, this is the Old Covenant. So how does it work in the New Covenant? Well, here's how it works. He just told us in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Listen to what he says over in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Here's how we are God's possession. He says, knowing that you were ransomed, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You were ransomed from your fallen, brokenness, inherited sin, your birth defect of sin. You were ransomed not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christians, God has chosen us, and he's not only chosen us, He's not only given us a job to do as his royal priests. He's not only made us a holy nation, but he has bought us. He has ransomed us. He has purchased us, not with paper money or silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ Jesus. Think about it this way. You're going to go to the store today probably, or you went yesterday, or if you're like us, you keep adopting dogs for some reason. But when you go somewhere and you pay money... For a, for a good or a pet, that thing becomes yours. But God, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, oh man, but God did the exact same thing for us. But he did it not with money, not with gold, not with silver, not with things that will perish and go away. He did it with the imperishable blood of the imperishable son, Christ Jesus just like the old hymn that we love to sing, and I'm sure if Peter knew it, he would have sang it, In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. This is Peter's point. And it's here at the cross of Jesus that he tells us in verse 9, here at the cross of Christ, in our position as exiles, in our position, in our roles as priests, in our roles as God's holy nation, in our roles as God's people, that we Christians should happily just rest and constantly remember. When we're discouraged, when we're frustrated, when we're tempted to lash out online because people are just posting stuff that drives us crazy, when there are riots, social unrest, when all of these things happen, when elections don't go the way we want them to, we're to embrace Jesus, not conspiracy theories. We're to embrace Jesus, not false narratives. Christian hope in Christ and hope in Him until the day of the Lord. That's his whole point here. As he says here, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the day of the Lord. That's the day Christ returns. Hope in Christ. It's here in the, in the cross of Christ in our position as exiles and priests and holy nation and chosen race that when we hear terrifying news about a virus we don't know how to deal with. Or... Thankfully, we're kind of figuring it out a little bit. Or we hear terrifying news about politicians that we hate or we like. Or we hear terrifying news about court decisions that make us really uncomfortable. Don't hope in those things. Hope in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's the point. You are part of God's holy nation. You belong to Him. And being God's treasured possession, we should just rest because God has made us His possession by the blood of Jesus Christ. Know your role, Lake Wildwood. You are a people for God's own, beloved, separated, consecrated, precious, precious possession. So say it with me. We are God's possession. We are God's
1: possession.
0: All right. So, so what? I know Paul likes to use this phrase. In regards to the application, so what? Now, we've gotten a lot of application as we've walked through this, but so what? What do we do with this, right? This sounds good, but big deal. It's 2021 in Macon, Georgia, not... 63 A.D. in Thessalonica. So what do I do with this? Peter has already told us. Actually, I closed my Bible too soon to give you the symbol that I was done, and I closed my Bible too soon. Peter has given us the application. He's given it to us in the rest of this passage. Look at what he says again. Verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's home possession. So that. So that." that. That is a key word. If you are a Bible highlighter, underwriter, marker, whatever, the word so that... Or so is a big little word, just like if and now and therefore. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of God who called you out of darkness, out of the darkness of your sin, the darkness of your moral birth defect, of the fallenness of man, and into the light of Jesus Christ. Once, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, he says, beloved, I urge you then as travelers, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they see your good, when they speak evil against you as evildoers, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of Christ. With these terms, Peter considers all Christians to be of one body. Natural descent, skin color, parentage, nationality, all of that is obliterated in the cross of Jesus Christ. All of these things are no longer factors in the lives of those whose faith and trust are in Jesus because now you are God's people, he tells us in verse 10. Now you have received God's mercy. So then, as travelers and exiles in the world, world, this world has no natural place for us. We don't belong here. So stay away from the passions of the flesh, he says there in verse 11. Stay away from them because they want nothing but to battle for your soul and to keep you from being effective black ops teams for the kingdom of God. That's what your fleshly passions want. That's what Satan wants. Keep you ineffective. So that way the kingdom of God does not grow. Instead, he says, verse 12, instead, be pure among the unbelieving world. And be so pure among the unbelieving world that they have no choice but to give God praise. Stay pure through the pure and spotless blood of Jesus Christ by calling on Him for redemption, by calling on Him for salvation, by calling on Him as Lord. Know your role. You are God's chosen race, God's royal priesthood, God's holy nation, and God's own possession. Praise be to God. Amen. 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 It's
1: good to have Nick back, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What a good word from the word. Amen. I love that. Well, there is enough on there to chew on. It's going to keep us meditating for this whole week, and the, the DLT group should be full, uh, full Lord discussion this week. Uh, we, just, we just praise the Lord for that. Uh, would you? Courtney's going to come, and uh, we're going to sing a song together. So do not you stand up? We're going to sing one of my favorites. Talk about a talk about know your role. Um, what, a, what a great song to finish with today. Before the throne of God. Uh, this is who we are. Before God's throne. Amen? And uh, let us think about, ponder what it is that we have heard today. The challenge that's been brought forth. We're not our own. We're a chosen race. We're at royal priesthood. Uh, we, we are all of those four things. What was the third one? Holy nation. God's own what possession, or all of those things. That because of that, what we're about to sing is absolutely true. So let's lift it up together. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea great high priest whose name is love whoever lives and pleads for me my name is graven on his hands my name is written on his heart. i know that while in heaven he stands no tongue can bid me thence depart no tongue can bid me, that deep depart. What a great confidence, amen, church? When Satan tempts me to despair And tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and see him there Who made an end to to all my sin. Because the sinless sinless Savior died. died. My sinful soul is counted free. free. For God the the just just is satisfied. To look on him and pardon me. Think about it. To to look look on him and pardon me. me oh the great grace of god in the gospel amen church behold him there the risen lamb behold him there the risen lamb my perfect spotless righteousness the great unchangeable i am the king of glory and of grace I cannot die My soul is purchased With His blood My life is in with Christ on high With Christ my Savior and my God With Christ my Savior and my God I love this verse I bow before the cross of Christ i bow before the cross of christ and marvel at this love divine god's perfect son was sacrificed to make me righteous in god's eyes this river's depths i cannot know but i can glory I was bowed down low and poured on me his glorious love and poured on me his glorious love. This river's depths I cannot know but I can glory in his flood. The Lord most high has bowed down low and he poured on me. Think about that. And he poured on me his glorious love. Ponder that. He poured on me, poured on you, his glorious love. (laughs) What a marvelous redemption we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we love you today. Thank you for this clear word that was so clearly proclaimed to us. Thank you for the reality of what we heard and how that must, that must impact the way that we're going to live this week, even the rest of this day. We thank you for Nick and for Sharon. We thank you for the ministry that they've had in Corinth. We lift them up uh, and we ask your choicest blessings on them your continued provision, your continued anointing on them as they moved to this uh, ministry at, at Christ Community in Jackson. And Lord, I just, I just pray that you would continue to speak through Nick, that you would continue to use Sharon uh, in, in this gospel ministry uh, to point and to encourage people to Christ and to encourage us to walk worthy of the salvation that you have poured out upon us. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. And as, as I head to the back here in a minute, I'm going to ask Nick and Sharon to join me at the back. You can greet them on your way out. Let's sing that doxology as we leave today. Praise God for from- all